0: It's time for OWC Radio, Tech Talk with Creatives, fun, informative, futuristic. OWC Radio's Creative Club, conversations with host Serena Catania.
1: This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio. I am speaking today with Dan Neese. Who was a longtime time cam operator and now a cinematographer. We call them DPs in our business. And Dan, I'm so happy to talk to you on the air because you're just a rarity in this town and welcome to the show.
2: Oh thank you very much for having me.
1: Yeah. We have so much to talk about. Let's let's just start almost at the beginning. When you were a little boy, you know, what? I like asking people what they liked to do when they were five, six, seven years old. What were you like as a little boy and what was life for you growing up?
2: I, I grew up in the small town of Blackville, South Carolina. It, was, uh, it, was, it had a population of about 2,000 people and surrounded by swamps and alligators. And, and it's 10 miles from Barnwell, South Carolina, where James Brown was born. And 14 miles on the other side of that is a little town called Allendale, where Jasper Johns grew up. Wow. So um, and this, the, the, I think what really happened in the area, people are saying there must have been something in the water, but I think really what happens is it's so darn boring down there that if you have a creative urge, you've got to figure out a way to get it out or you're going to go nuts.
1: You need time to be creative, and I think in a busy life in the cities, we don't often have time. I, I totally agree with you. I think some of my most Im- wonderful memories are escaping when I was a little girl from my house and climbing into an apple tree to write poetry and just think about the meaning of life. So I think when you're in a small town, that's, that's what happens, right? That's great.
2: It's really like there's... You know, there's not too much trouble you can get into because even if you go out in the woods and get lost, lost, the dog knows the way home. So, <laughs> and I was always sure, sor- <laughs> yeah. and and um, you know, so you just follow the dog out of the swamp, and you're 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 back you're back in in your little town, you know, and um, and and I grew up from a very young age. When, when I was a baby, my mother would take me and put me in the playpen, but rather than turn on the television set, she'd put on classical music on the radio, I mean, or on the record player.
0: Mm. And
2: so I know all of the melodies um, from all the classics of, of uh, classical music. So that that was kind of an interesting way to help my brain develop musically early. And then that took me in a musical direction for a while. and then, and working as a camera operator or a Steadicam operator, the the music helped define beats of a scene mm-hmm. so you'd have a um, um, movies are interesting they have a beginning a middle and end loud parts soft parts fast parts slow parts just like a piece of music
0: mm-hmm. and
2: um so when people would have me shoot music videos or do music scenes in movies or things like that I, I was very attuned i knew when the when the downbeat was i knew where the camera needed to be at a certain point point. and um it really helped me and, and it's, it's the kind of thing that you never thought you'd you'd uh use in a million years uh the other one was when i took typing in high school i said i'm never going to use this and i spend hours on the computer every day so <laughs> now, I, I was uh when i was in the seventh grade i won a medal for playing overture roika on the oboe and um then I but I would bounce around in the band from oboe to saxophone to to uh some of the horns to some of the drums to uh, it it was a very uh, uh, uh fluid and fascinating thing for me and we had pianos in the house and I could kind of poke on those you know I I was as a kid I was pretty lucky that I could pick up almost any instrument and get some sort of musical sound out of it I, I still have some, some instruments and things and I, I dabble in it still, but I mean I mainly concentrate on on being a director of photography um, but it, again that, that sort of upbringing, it, bringing when you're young that prewires your brain to have different to think in different ways than, than just the the, the normal uh, regimented ways of thought. It, it connects different synapses in your brain because mm-hmm. musically it's, it's you know, your your brain, when you're a, a youngster, like three, four, five years old, two years old, one year old, your brain is a recorder, and it's just sucking in everything it can get. And um, that's why you don't use too much profanity around little kids, because they'll remember that, you know. But it's 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 every kind of input you can get, your brain is programming itself. And um, then when you get to be our age now, you know, you got a lot of stuff in there, so every once in a while you forget something. But <laughs> I was talking to one of my friends, and I said, you know, it's – it's not as easy to learn as when you're a little kid. And you said, well, your brain's full. You've you, you filled your brain full of stuff, you know? <laughs> I mean, a lot, a lot of times now, though, if you get into situations where you're working really, really hard over and over many hours, your brain goes on sort of automatic, and you don't even have to think a thought through. It comes automatically out of your head that you need to do this and this and this. And, and it becomes like an automated function in a way. And, um, but you have to be careful of that and over- override it because you don't want to be doing... The same thing over and over and over because you want to keep creating things and and I, I tell people a lot of times if you have a creative mind you have to keep it busy because like in between jobs if you're not working your mind's still going to be creative it's just it'll start creating negative things instead of positive things so you always have to keep it occupied and keep good things going through your head because you, you don't want it to turn on you you know
1: yeah so how long did you live in this small town before you left
2: uh, until i was a until I was about 17 or 18 years old, and then I went to the University of South Carolina. And or, or, See, I come from a family of, of doctors for hundreds of years. My, my grandfather was a doctor. My father was a doctor. My little brother is a doctor. My mother was a pharmacist. You know, I, I didn't want to be a doctor. I was the one who had to go wash the blood off the front porch with, with the water hose when people come to the house after hours, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, um, and it wasn't really the blood that I didn't, it, it was just my mind was clicking away Mm-hmm. And it still does. Every once in a while, I'll start thinking about something creative. I'll go to sleep and in the middle of the night, I'll pop open and it'll still be going. You know, it's like it's doing its own thing. I can't really. Uh, it's, it's like, a uh, well, your mind is a computer, you know, it's, it's a it's a, a biological computer and it's going to run programs when you're asleep. It's dreams. It's doing this maintenance It's setting itself up for the next day. Mm-hmm. And, and whether you have. Things that you have to do the next day, whether you have trauma that you have to wash out of there, you know, whatever you've got going on, your 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 brain is gonna um, is gonna deal with that in, in the way that it knows how to do, and um, that's you know when you go to sleep, that's why you need to sleep because your brain needs time to do maintenance, you know. <laughs> it's, it's it's like defragmenting your hard drive almost in your sleep.
1: Yeah, I I agree. Sometimes when I'm stuck, I'll I'll just stop and then. Uh, when I wake up, the answer's there. So you know, you do chug mm-hmm. at night. And creativity—I don't know that we can control the muse. It just—you know—she's there when we need her. When we don't want her, she's there. When we do want her, mm-hmm. sometimes she's there. Like she just comes at the craziest times. Were you did? Were you uh, into still photography at all when you were in high school? You were studying music. Uh,
2: mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I—I I, I, I was. I did a lot of still photography. We had these things called Polaroid cameras, which mm-hmm. I, I don't think many people have anymore, you know, but that was like, it was fun to take a picture with that and then watch it appear before your eyes. Mm-hmm. And um, the first ones, when the picture would come out of the camera, you had to peel it apart and then you had another little thing of, uh, with a, a wiper on it and you had to wipe on the, um, the Polaroid image to fix it or it would go, it wouldn't stop developing, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, but then we had a lot of film cameras. I took, when I was in college, I took hundreds of still pictures, but what really got me in the, in the movie direction was when I was 13 years old, my mother bought a super eight camera and I started filming everything. And it, it, it I learned immediately what worked and what didn't with that camera. Cause it didn't have a reflex viewfinder it had a parallax viewfinder. So I wasn't actually looking through the taken lens. So the first few films, when I got close I, they were, they were not framed properly because the, you weren't looking through the lens. And so I kind of figured that out. And, and, that was back when film was cheap. You could get a, um, a roll of Super 8 with processing included for $3. Hmm.
0: So,
2: um, Which, you know, nowadays, $3 back then was like $30 now, so it wasn't that cheap. But it's it, it's it was still something that you could do. And you got like, oh, I forget, two and a half minutes worth of film on a cartridge. So if you planned your, your, your things out right, you could do pretty interesting things, and you could do film or animations or... And, um, and one of the, you know, some of the first things I started doing were, were anim- I became fascinated with animation and, um, I started doing a lot of animated things and then, um, um, then, then it was, uh, you know, chasing the, the animals around the house or the family or, or <laughs> putting a little boat in the swimming pool and pretending I was in the middle of World War II or some kind of, you know, all the silly things you do when you're a youngster. So, of
1: course, and.
2: Uh, Especially in a small town, you're trying to amuse yourself, because otherwise you're going to be really bored because there's nothing going on.
1: Do you have those films? Do you still have them?
2: I think they may be in, in the house in South Carolina somewhere, some of that stuff. Um, I probably should go try to save them before everything gets destroyed and transfer them over to, to another medium, so
1: yeah. we can watch them. Yeah, well, also, that the the film deteriorates after a while. I know I've worked on some retrospective kind of things for... You know, for clients and some of the older film is so fragile you can't even put it through the projector uh, because it's deteriorating. You need to save the films.
2: Well, I got I got to save them. You know, well, what I used to do too is when I was in in school, I'd t- get Super Eight cartridges and I'd li- leave them on the dash of the car. I'd throw them up under the seat and ride around all summer, and then take them out and shoot them, and they got really interesting because the 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 radiation from the sun or the heat or it would make you get like really giant-sized grains and and um, or big globs of stuff on the film when it when you develop it, and so it, it wouldn't wouldn't look like they wanted it to to look. And but I thought that was interesting.
0: hmm
1: mm-hmm. Sometimes those mistakes are some of the best things, aren't they?
2: Yeah, they are. I mean, you you get happy accidents that happen, and, and um, I'm I, I would go out and shoot things. I remember one time we had an assignment to go out in a junkyard and shoot different things. And I shot this bolt that was sticking out of a piece of metal somewhere. And somehow I didn't set the camera right. And it was like five stops underexposed on, on slide film, which is like the kiss of death. But then I, <laughs> the guy had it developed and it was really interesting looking cause it looked like this sort of dark monster coming out of the, the blackness. And, um, so that, that sort of gave me some ideas and, um, I tend to, um, embrace those ideas and think outside you know uh, differently than than other people think when I do things sometimes because to me then the ordinary is kind of boring and I want to do something different.
1: Do people ever say to you you need to look at this person's work and that person's work and that person's work before you start directing or producing or filming or being a DP? What do you say to them when they tell you that? I say go away. I am so glad you said that because I really believe that creative people need to have confidence in their own muse, in their own creativity. You need to listen to that voice. And I think that's why your work is so good um, because you have that combination of being able to listen to your own voice, but then working with other people and keeping them happy. It's difficult to mm-hmm. do. It's really difficult to do. Um,
2: it, it, it's very, it's very difficult. And, you know, it, it, it it's, 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 you have to balance a lot of personalities when you're working on the set. And you and you have to do things in a way that you make every person on the set happy and still get done what you need to get done to, to satisfy the, the needs of the script. Because everything comes down to the script. The, you read the script. I mean, I've read so many scripts now. When I read a script, I watch the movie in my head as I read the script.
0: Mm-hmm. I already
2: know what the movie, at least in my mind, is, is, is formulating to be. And then when i finally meet with the director after i've read the script i'm like well you know i don't know how you see this but when i read the script i saw this and i saw these images here and this here and this here and this here and this is what the the script told me it needed to be or the movie needed to be and sometimes we'll agree and sometimes we'll disagree but it's a starting point for us to have the conversation about where we're going to go with the film and what the film is going to um eventually become and that that's incredibly important because what 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 you have to realize is when you start making a film everybody has to be making the same movie you can't have somebody be making one movie over here and another movie over there i mean they all have to be coming together for a, a common purpose in a with a common vision so that you accomplish what the director wants to see out of that script because it and, and essentially it's the director's movie and you're there to help him or her um bring that to fruition to the best of your ability Mm
1: -hmm. so let's go back to back in the late 70s Um, you're working on your master's in uh, media arts right you're at university of -hmm. south carolina and then when did you when did you start shooting news because see i think news is a great training ground for several reasons but when did you start working in news when, when I was in
2: graduate school, uh-huh. when I was in graduate school at WIS Television in, in Columbia, South Carolina, I was the NBC affiliate. Mm-hmm. And um, I was what they called a news trainee. So I would be in, I'd, I'd, in the morning, I'd go to my classes. In the afternoon, I was a graduate teaching assistant in charge of the Oxbury animation stand. And in the evening, about six o'clock, I would go to the news, the news station, uh, get in my little van with a dish on top. And, she, and go with the reporters out until about midnight or 1 in the morning and then come home and get back up about 6 and go back and get ready for class. And um, so it was a pretty full schedule. Um, but And we had, it was back when Iran had the hostages. It, it was, you know, so we went to a lot of hostage rallies. I, I got to shoot interviews with Count Basie and John Connolly, who was mm-hmm. in the car with, with JFK when he was shot. John actually got shot as well, sitting beside him. And... um And so it was a pretty fascinating time for me. And that was back when you had a separate tape recorder, what we called a a -a Mm port-a-pack that used three-quarter inch tape. We had cameras that were tube cameras. So if you pointed them anything bright too long, it would burn the tube. So you had to be really careful of those. Mm -hmm. And so you'd carry each one of those things were about 40 pounds. Then you had two battery belts. You had a sun gun and you had a uh, Electrovoice Voice 635 mic on a fairly long cable from the reporter and you're carrying all that around. It was the heaviest carrying a Steadicam. And we'd be going running around carrying all this stuff and it was uh, and going to school board meetings or, or protest or whatever needed to be uh, done. So it, 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 I had a a microwave dish on top of the van. They told us every time we turned it on, we lost a kid. Oh! Uh-huh. Because of because of the microwave uh, transmitters, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't very clean transmission back then. So, you know, it was, it,
1: <laughs> it was dangerous. It was. Uh, let's get Who into what we'll talk offline about 5g.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I carried those battery bricks around too. actually it took me many years to throw them away because I just, there was mm-hmm. so much, uh, so many memories <laughs> with that equipment, right? Um, But I think, what did did you learn doing news that you think you carried into the next phase?
2: Well, you learn when somebody's out there blowing somebody away, you can't ask them to do it twice. You got to get it the first time. You know, it's like, if if you see something, and we, you know, you'd see really horrific things and and it would be like, well, you got, I'd go out in the van, you know, whoever was with me before or or whoever had the van previously, two of the lights would burn out and I'd only have one light left. Mm. And, and, and you know, you do with what you got, you know, and in the news business, if you could see it, it was good. Mm-hmm. It it didn't have to be artistic. It just had to be documented.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, um, but it, it's some of the best training you can ever have for the film business because you, you learn that you can't fool around and you don't have time to get second chances. You better get it right the first time or you may not get another chance, and a lot of times that's true in the film business too. There may only be one good take, right and you better get it. You know, I mean, I did, I did two TV movies with Anne Bancroft. And when that that she wasn't a big woman, but whenever she turned it on, you just prayed you were in the right spot to catch it because it was going to come out of her where you whether you were ready or not. You know, mm. she's a fair was a very strong actress. Marsha Gay Harden's the same way. She's got very uh, strong. Uh, she emotes very strongly, too. So, I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of great performances through my lens. <laughs> it's 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 it's. it's, it's it's like having the the best seat in the house at a wonderful play every day of your life. Do
1: you feel like you look at life through your lens, even when you're not shooting? I know, I know, I do. I, I, and I have people tell me, put when I'm not working, I always have a camera. Do you do that?
2: Well, I, I carry my iPhone around with me because, you know, I saw a quote from Annie Leibovitz one time, and it was it was, and, and somebody asked her, "What's the what's the uh, the best camera?" You, available now for a photog- for a beginning photographer and she said an iPhone and uh, cuz you always and you the best camera that you can have is the one you have with you at the time you see the shot so mm-hmm. whether you have it on an iPhone or an SLR or a, or a, a super Panavision 70 you know you, you you can just you see the image the image is in your head you capture that image and then that's the image that you have when i went to i've been to Italy and France a few times over the last few years and I'd send back pictures and people say, these pictures are beautiful, what you take them with and when I tell them it was an iPhone they can't believe it and sometimes people put like little teary faces and stuff and I'm like you didn't feel that way before I told you it was an iPhone. If I never told them it was with an iPhone, they never would have realized what I took it with, you know?
1: Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. It's not the size of the wrench, it's the person behind it.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
2: So, So if you if if you if, you're, if in your mind's eye you see something and whatever tool you have with you allows you to capture that then you've done well.
1: Hmm. <laughs> That's awesome. You are doing what you are supposed to do. Doesn't it feel like that? Does it feel like life has brought you to where you want to be?
2: Well, I, I mean, I lived in that little small town, and I, I thought, you know, making movies was impossible. So I would try it, so I could fail and come home and get a real job like raising pigs. But, <laughs> but. Uh, but you know, it worked and I'm still here and I'm living in Los Angeles and I'm doing what I want to do. And, and I'm, I'm really pretty happy with that. Yeah. I pinch myself every day because it's like, I'm really getting to do this. This is, this is amazing to me. It's it's, it's fascinating and amazing. And, and I still love it and love to do it uh, whenever I get the chance. So it's, it's. I mean, I've heard several people say this quote, but if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. And that's. That's kind of the way I look at it. I just want to keep on doing it as long as I can, I'm can. allowed to do it. And um, I think they'll put me in the coffin, and I'll be hanging out with one arm with a camera sticking out on the way <laughs> in the, in the, the, the yeah, like, the, the, that'll be the hardest thing for the undertaker to get that last arm in the in the box. You know,
1: <laughs> you'll be lying there going, "Wait a minute! It's not. I can't shoot. It's totally dark in here." <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Move the light a little bit this way. You know, <laughs> can We've
1: you leave a, a crack?
2: People or, yeah, I need know. a
1: crack. I need a crack through the coffin so I can shoot the crowd. Oh my goodness! Talk to me about uh, your your when you went into learning Steadicam because Garrett Brown's a wonderful person. What was it like studying under him?
2: Uh, he, uh, Garrett is like still uh, one of my dearest friends to this day, and we 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 met in December seventeenth, nineteen eighty two, in Miami, and that's where I went to the to the, the Steadicam class that Garrett and Toby Phillips and Randy Nolan taught me how to do Steadicam, and I was in there with, with um, my other two uh, uh, fellow students that really did well were a guy from Paris named Jacques Mange, uh, and and a guy from Florida named Robert Ulland. And both of them sadly are passed away now, but mm. they both did some amazing work. Jacques went back to Paris and became the Steadicam guy in Paris for many, many years. And Bob was, he always lived in Florida, but he traveled all around um, and did a lot of major movies. And um, so it, it's, it's been a, a, a great run. Garrett is like an, undeniably a genius and not only did he invent the steady cam but he invented the sky cam and all you know whenever you watch the olympics and you see the the people dive off of the high dive and mm-hmm. the camera follows them down and goes into the water that's mm-hmm. one of Garrett's cameras hmm. i think and then hmm. there's one like when they when they run obstacles and do races the, the cameras that fly along with the with the runners as they're going along that's one of Garrett's cameras then the sky cam where the camera comes from above on cables that's one of Garrett's cameras and uh, the other thing that Garrett's done, that, that I'm not sure how many people know this, but he's also the voice of Molson Golden in all the, the beer commercials.
1: I didn't know that. Voice. I did yeah. not know that. Oh, my mm-hmm. goodness.
2: That's Garrett Brown. <laughs> and then he started out as a folk singer.
1: So, wow. so do you guys ever and, play but, music together?
2: No, no, we, we, we haven't. But, um, you know, he had an album out. And I think you can find it if you dig around um I forgot the name of the his group but uh if you look for Garrett Brown you sure you should be able to find it and um but he 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 lives now and has always lived in Philadelphia he never left Philadelphia and still went around and and and, and did movies all over the world you know so he's he he's, he's and just a dear friend a brilliant man you know somebody that you're you're very happy to know and love you know
1: mhm so you were you were learning about the Steadicam. Do you remember the first thing you shot using the Steadicam?
2: I did. Well, I I, I went and um, I went through the school, and that was nineteen eighty in the nineteen eighty two, and I got a call from um, Earl Owensby Studios in Shelby, North Carolina, and because um, an, an equipment dealer that I knew that I bought a few cameras and stuff from in Charlotte had. Um, gotten a Steadicam from John Berry Group out in Australia. And um, they got it down to Myrtle Beach and they were doing a, a movie called Chain Gang and it was in 3D. And they didn't know how to work the Steadicam and didn't know how to adjust it. And um, so they said, well, the, my friend said, nah, I know this guy who has uh, just come out of the school. We should bring him down here. So I went down there and the Steadicam had been... Um, they had a 51-pound arm that had been modified with super long screws in it. And they had a little light Aeroflex camera on it, and and the, and they, um, but the the arm was cranked up so high that the the arm was standing straight up in the air, and so it was had way too much spring tension on it for the um, for the camera that was on the Steadicam. But at the time, the factory didn't make adjustable arms, so I looked at it. And I saw it was a 51-pound arm, which was for the Ari 35BL, which is much heavier. And I started taking the arm apart because I've always liked to take things apart. <laughs> and um, my mother would come in, and I'd, she'd give me a radio, and I'd take the radio apart and put it back together, and it would still work. I'd have a handful of parts left over, but it still worked, so it was like... <laughs> Yeah, you know, that's how you learn, you
1: know. You'd have parts left over and it still worked. I remember my parents walked in on me when I lived in France and I was on the hardwood floor and I had taken apart the telephone and I had parts mm-hmm. everywhere because back then the telephones were really interesting. They were horrified. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so you started <laughs> you started taking this arm apart. Was the production horrified? Were they scared?
2: No, no, no. They, they, they were out doing other things. They didn't even know I was doing it, but I was bound and determined to get to the base of what was going on. Mm -hmm. And so I pulled the covers off the springs on the arm. And I noticed that the Australians had put like really long screws in, in the, um, in the arm for the spring adjustments. And so I took those screws and I dialed them down and dialed them down and dialed them down. And then, um, until I got the arm where it should rest for the particular camera that we had. And, um, so I, I got that going, and then the other thing I had to do was I had to make a uh, a plate for the top, for the camera at the top, because the 3D lens was so big and heavy that it made the Steadicam front heavy, and I didn't have enough adjustment to get it further back. So we made that plate, or actually, maybe I just taped a battery on the, I taped an extra battery on the back of the Steadicam to balance it out. Anyway, I got it balanced out to where it worked like it should, and then all of a sudden I was like the guy, you know? <laughs> and... Um, I did about six movies with Earl Earl studio. And then after that, um, Dino DiLorentis had opened the studio in Wilmington, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And so I started hitting them up and I had, I put together a reel, which is basically, um, me chasing my little brother around the house in Columbia, South Carolina, around the yard and crawling over a fence and the camera just followed him wherever he went. And, and, um, and I sent that mm-hmm. reel up to Dino DeLorentis to the actually to the Joe Dunton cameras up there. And they watched it, and they started telling everybody about it. And I didn't get a Cat's Eye, and I didn't get Firestarter. But there was this movie called Blue Velvet that um, they called me, and they said, do you want to do this movie called Blue Velvet? And I said, sure. And I was <laughs> I was on one of the Owensby movies at the time, and I had a travel day going between Shelby and, and Hilton Head Island, where we were going to shoot. And they were shooting Blue Velvet in Wilmington. And so I just swung through Wilmington on the travel day, spent the night there, and I said, well, who's shooting this thing? And, and I, I, I pulled the, the, the call sheet out, and it was David Lynch. And I, <laughs> I was like, you know, we'd all seen Dune, and my right. friend and I in South Carolina, and we said, if there's anybody we could work with in this business, it would be David Lynch, and you know, he'd be the the guy, you know. And so I didn't sleep at all at night, and I stood in front of the mirror, looking at myself, saying, "You can do this. You can do this," you know. <laughs> so, so then we we get there, and and uh, and it's a it's a big 35L uh, camera with a, about a seven pound anamorphic lens on it, and I get it all set up. I'd bought the Steadicam that we'd used on Chain Gang earlier, and so I had the, enough arm to hold it all, but. I only had two shots in the movie. One was um, uh, Kyle McLaughlin walking up with the bug sprayer up to Dorothy Valen's apartment. And then the other one was he comes busting out of the doorway and he and Laura Dern run back down the stairs talking about the key that he's stolen so he can get back into Dorothy's apartment later. And those were my two shots in Blue Velvet. Well, I shoot those and I go down to um, Hilton Head and I shoot down there. And then they call me. They track me down in Hilton Head and they say you got to come back. And I, I said what? And they said we had some kind of lens problem. You know, you got to come back. It wasn't anything to do with you, but you know, we got to shoot everything all over again.
0: Oh my well, it goodness! Just happened to be on
2: the travel. Yeah, it just happened to be on the travel day that I was going back up to um, to uh, Shelby for a night shoot. So I drove to Wilmington. I reshot all those shots. Threw the stuff in the car drove from one side of North Carolina to the other, landed in Shelby, and then did a whole night shoot, stayed up all night. So that was a long day.
1: No <laughs> kidding. Oh, my goodness.
2: <laughs> but it led to an ongoing relationship with David Lynch to this day. And um, because we we did Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart then Twin Peaks, and then Lost Highway, or, or actually Firewalk with Me, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, plus some music video and, and uh, commercial work. And so all of that Uh, just all happened because of a travel day and and a a few shots. And um, Actually, the the new Criterion Blue Velvet disc that just came out has uh, the the footage. David found the underexposed footage in a warehouse in Seattle. How it got up there, we don't know. But it's got those uh, lost shots in it. Hmm. And then it's also got a documentary of us making Blue Velvet um, which is really strange to see myself from 1985 with my little steady cam, you know, <laughs> and then, and that. then um, there's uh, an interview that we did a, uh, several years ago um, that it's, it's a series of interviews called, uh, what is it? Uh, it's by Benedict Fancy, a, a filmmaker up in, in Wilmington where we went back to the locations where we did Blue Velvet and got on that stairwell and actually, um, Walk through and talk about how we did it and this is where we did this and that. And, and, um, it's pretty fascinating. So if you get that criterion disc, you can have all this. And, um, so that, that was, that was kind of fun. And and that got me from doing the, the first shell, uh, uh, Earl Owensby movies in Shelby, we blew everything up and we'd shoot somebody with with a machine gun. We wouldn't shoot them once. We put a hundred bullet hits on them. They die (laughs) in slow motion for like five minutes and blood would go everywhere. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh come on. Yeah. Blowing things up is so much fun.
2: <laughs> oh, we we yeah, it is. We had a forty tractor trailer full of bombs,
1: yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so you went we, from we, blowing we did, things up hmm? to you went from blowing things up to the very introspective psychological thriller kind of stuff that David Lynch was doing at the time. That's kind of a yeah. little, a little shift, wasn't it?
2: Yes, but it was fascinating, and 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 you know, David and I've gotten along really well for years because we just clicked,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: it 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 got to the point there was like on Wild at Heart, there's a scene where Nicholas Cage and Laura Dern go dancing out at the old Palomino nightclub, which used to be out in the valley, mm-hmm. and um, we were we're filming there, and and it's where Nicholas Cage and the punk comes up and tries to dance with Laura Dern, and Nicholas Cage, and he says, "You got a stupid looking jacket," and Nicolas Cage says. This is a snakeskin jacket, a symbol of my individuality and personal freedom. <laughs> and um then they then then they uh have a little bit of a fight and then Nicholas Cage and Laura dance. But it's like that scene the the direction I got was to go out there and get it. And so I went and shot it, and then I came back after I ran out of film and, and David said, What'd you get? And I said, Well I did this, 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 this. I got these parts of the scene. Okay, go out and get what you didn't get before.
1: Oh, nice.
2: And he would, he he just trusted me, and I knew, you know, we 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 developed a rapport where we sort of knew what he, I knew what he wanted, and I just would do it, you know. And um, well, I mean, it, it was basically I shot one side of the scene, which was would be uh, Laura's side with the heavy with this you know speed metal band in the background. And then I turned around and did Nicholas's side, and it, it would be like floating into overs floating and doing a uh, wider shots and, and moving around the camera, I'd constantly just move in from a close up to a wide shot to other things. I mean, the whole scene is basically a couple of steady cam shots with maybe a high angle and a low angle, uh, from stationary cameras later on. But, um, that, that was pretty much it. And we, we really developed a rapport and, um, then let's see so we did that, then we did Twin Peaks and and that was on that was ninety and ninety one. And did I was on every episode of that except for the pilot, I think. And then we did Firewalk with Me, where we actually went up to Seattle and shot the whole film up there. And then um and then uh, after that it was Lost Highway.
1: I don't know how you then, keep track of everything. You have so many credits. <laughs>
2: I, I have to look at IMDb to see what I've done because I can't remember.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, so what is David doing now? What is? Are you guys still working on things together now?
2: I, I didn't work on the new Twin Peaks. They had a whole new crew. Uh, but uh, David is, has got the David Lynch Foundation now, which is for. Uh, it originally uh, was formed to help kids learn through meditation, and then it evolved into like veterans army or, or military veterans to help them overcome PTSD. And it's kind of developing this massive worldwide organization now for, for uh, TM. And so he's pretty busy with that. And he also, uh, I mean, David's foundation or his, his, what he started out with was being a painter. And so he's, he paints a lot as well. So he's, he's a, he's a pretty, uh, prolific individual. Um, so, I mean, his paintings are massive, and and they're very interesting. And you can immediately look at one and tell it's David's painting. Nobody else does paintings like David. So it, that's that's really um, – uh, I love going to his shows when he has openings because it's, mm-hmm. I always see interest in new things. And, and he makes furniture and does other things too. But, um, I mean, in, in addition to being a master filmmaker.
1: So in the days when you were using the Steadicam, you, I mean, and you did that for many years. I think it was just recently mm-hmm. that you sort of dialed that down a little bit, right? But you yeah, were, you, yeah, you were there in the heyday. I mean, the Steadicam was still fairly new, uh, right? Mm-hmm. and and. Uh, you, you could-
2: you could count everybody on two hands that was doing it when I started.
1: Mm-hmm. What did you, what was your style back then that gave you some notoriety? What caused people to kind of notice your work? What do you looking back?
2: Well, I went to the school in Miami and then I went back to South Carolina for five years by myself and developed my bad habits. And <laughs> <laughs> But my, my style was always a little different than all the other Steadicam operators. I mean, people notice it and it's, where some of them were more rock solid and dolly like, I was always the the camera always had a bit of a a motion and a float to it that was was it became a character. Which I mean, a lot of us when we would film things, that the, the Steadicam could be either an observer or a participant. So it it it, it and it kind of can kind of float back and forth between those things. So um, my style was always a little more flowing and and and. Although I could be precise, uh, sometimes I wasn't precise on purpose or, or I would put the camera where it needed to be in other ways. So,
1: would I be it, right in I mean, saying that in a lot of the scenes your camera was the POV of the character? Because it feels alive when I look at, you know, when I look at uh, some of the clips you've put up of your work. It, mm-hmm. well, it
2: breathes. I mean, the, the, yeah, well, the opening of, of Scream with Drew Barrymore where I, sh- I shot that um that's always very, um, I did a few, th- I mean, it's it's a fairly solid take, but I did things like when I'd push in on, on her, when she would, when she'd get the weird phone calls and things, I'd just twist the camera just ever so slightly when the guy started threatening her, when it started getting strange. and um, And then we chased her around the house and out the front door, and there was a lot of different things that went on. Uh, Wes Craven saw, said the next day after he'd seen the dailies, it was the best first day's dailies he'd ever had on any movie. Oh, that's um, awesome! Wes that's was awesome. a lovely man. I did I did two movies with him, the uh, Scream and then the People Under the Stairs. And um, but I you know I I was constantly working on different movies, so sometimes I'd do three movies in three different towns in a week, and so I'd do part of Scream and then I would go and do uh, do another movie in another town, another movie in another town. I'd wake up in a hotel room. I wouldn't know where I was. And I'd go look out the window. I still wouldn't know where I was. (laughs) I'd have to find a phone book to know what town I was in.
1: Well, you must've been exhausted. I don't know. I don't know how you did it all, but you're still doing it
2: it. Yeah, it was, it was, it was really pretty crazy. There, there was a lot of times where I spent my, my life in super shuttles and on airplanes and in hotel rooms. And, um, I would. I would. It was not unusual for me to lose five pounds a day, uh, carrying this weight around because I sometimes I carry eighteen for eighteen hours a day. I carry a hundred pounds around, you know. So, um, and not all of it would be walking. Some of you running, going up and down stairs, jumping on and off of cranes, mounted to vehicles. The um, opening of, of Lost Highway is the title sequence is me hanging off the front of a camera car in low mode with an Airy 3 with a, with a Panavision anamorphic about two inches off the road, um, going 35, well, we're going 35 miles an hour in 24 degree weather and the cameras running six frames a second. So it's the equivalent of 140 miles an hour. And we, I had to hang out there for 16 minutes in the windshield for, um, so we'd have the full roll of film to put the titles on because we needed the full four minute roll.
0: for all the main
2: titles of the movie. And, um, I had on two pairs of long johns, all my street clothes, a snowmobile suit, a ski mask, two pairs of gloves, and by the end of the run, um, I could only open one eye, I couldn't feel my fingers, and I'd slobbered all over my face. But it was worth it, because the the camera looks very good, you know, and, and David still tells the story about how cold it was, and how long I hung out there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you couldn't come back in, you were frozen.
2: <laughs> I was I was there I was and I had to be very careful because if if we hit a bump and I let the camera go down further than the two inches above the pavement, it would hit the pavement and then the whole camera would be sucked up under the camera car and be destroyed. So it was it was quite a an undertaking, you know.
1: No pressure.
2: So no, no pressure. No, you well, no, you you just do what you got to do. It's what's got to be done. It's like. Uh, opening a wild at heart. I'm running up and down the stairs with Nicholas Cage and he has the fight with the black guy and beats his head into the Durazzo floor and we're all over those carpeted stairs down at the at the Elks Lodge downtown. And I think they call it the Park Plaza Hotel now. But it was the Elks Lodge when we shot there they shot journey videos there and I shot another or worked on another movie there called uh Rockstar which where we shot upstairs and we carried Technocranes up the stairs and then oh, we did another thing for the for um well, I think it was LG uh, 3D televisions and stuff where we did a bunch of stuff in there, too. So it's a popular location down by down by MacArthur Park in Los Angeles. And um, but I mean, I did all those things for 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 David and then I did a couple of movies for Quentin Tarantino. I did two for Joel Schumacher and two for Wes Craven. And then there's all. Kind of other movies and television shows and stuff. It it just all runs together in my mind. People will say, "Did you do that?" And I just found one on IMDb the other day that I or yesterday that I'd done and I forgot to put a credit in on it. So I had to add a credit yesterday for one from 15 years ago that I because I'd done so many and I said, "Oh yeah, I worked on that one. I better stick my name on that one too." <laughs> but. It, it, but I mean, you know, the whole opening of Jackie Brown was me with Steadicams and dollies and stuff, because I was a camera and Steadicam operator on that, and um, and then I did the Steadicam on Grindhouse, the Death Proof segment of Grindhouse with Quentin too. So. Um,
1: well, I saw and, uh, you at NAB, and you were leaving to go on a shoot. Were you going to Africa? Where were you going when I saw you at NAB in April?
2: Oh, in mm-hmm. April, I was going down to Tucson to scout a cowboy movie that I'm supposed to do in November.
1: Oh, okay, all right.
2: And because uh, I I just come back from doing something else, and then I'm I'm I've got a movie I'm supposed to shoot before November in um in a house that Albert Einstein used to live in, a beach house that Albert Einstein used to live in, and so um and that's going to be sort of like a a big chill with a haunted, twisted end sort of thing. So that'll be fun. And um, it's not a dull life, you know. <laughs>
1: it's a wonderful life. How do you manage yeah. to have, I mean, 24-7 sounds like with you. Um,
2: well, it can be, you know. Well, it depends. Like beginning of this year has been a little slow, but then things are starting to pick up now, and it's probably going to be like a rat race all the way to the end, you know. But... um Happy rat race, though you know, I had yeah. little happy rats running. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's wonderful. So you made the the switch from Steadicam to uh, being becoming a cinematographer, DP. Do you do you like that? Tell me about that world for you.
2: I, I do like that. I'm 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 actually happier doing that, than I did, was as a Steadicam operator. I mean, I, we just had a, um, a a premiere of our movie about Mary Pickford, and called Why Not Choose Love: A Mary Pickford Manifesto at the Ace Hotel downtown in the United Artists Theater that Mary designed, and we showed our Mary Pickford movie, and it's the 100th anniversary of United Artists this year, which Mary founded. So that showing went really well. We had 800 people there, and um, it, it was it was fun for me because I got to make uh, modern-day uh, Ari Alexis look like 1909 film cameras, and so that was a bit of a challenge, and we had really great performers. Jennifer D'Elia was was the director. Um, uh, Sophie Kennedy Clark played Mary Pickford. Carrie always played DW Griffith. Luke Arnold played, uh, Douglas Fairbanks. And we had Balthazar Getty in it who already knew from Lost Highway. And, um, it, it turned out to be a really, uh, interesting good little film. Um, that that I got to pull out all the stops and make it it doesn't look like any movie you've ever seen. Can it, we see it?
1: it? Is it out somewhere where we can see it?
2: Uh we still got to do a few little things uh, mm-hmm. to it before they're going to um release it I think. And so what's what's going on is we still got to do titles, I want to do one final color pass mm-hmm. and things like that. And but then, you know, it'll be it should be out I'm guessing in the next year or so.
1: You were talking about how it didn't look like any other movie I've ever seen. Can, can mm-hmm. you keep going there? Because I, I, I all of a sudden I'm going, oh well, I want to see it, and I interrupted you. My mouth moves too fast sometimes. I apologize. <laughs> you know, I just this is so fascinating. So you you were starting to tell us what was different about this film.
2: Well, it it it, it doesn't look like any film you've ever seen. It, 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 the story is not like any other film you've ever seen. It, it all takes place in Mary Pickford's head. And it, the, the premise of it, which is uh, sort of the background material, is Mary Pickford was um, offered Sunset Boulevard by Billy Wilder, who wrote the script for her. To, and, and she turned it down. But... And the part eventually went to Gloria Swanson. But... Um, our film takes place in her mind from between between the time she gets the script and when she turns it down as she looks back through her life from nineteen o nine to about nineteen forty
0: nine
2: hmm. and it's 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 a very um it's a it's a very different film it's a very beautiful film uh the performances are amazing um uh, the direction's very good. Every, everything really kind of works with it but it it's it's not like your conventional uh movie so it's it's i think it's 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 worth seeing not only because it's a good film but also because it's very different than anything you've ever seen before or ever will see again so
1: that's awesome yeah, so do you like directing
2: i I've mm-hmm. directed a few little things, but mm-hmm. uh, you know i'm in earlier in my life, I didn't think I had anything to say, but I think I'm finally getting to the point where I could have something to convey to other people, you know?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, um, I, I work with a lot of, uh, first time directors and, and, and I get to, to help guide them, uh, sometimes, you know, it's, it's my, my job is to serve the script and the director. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole, whole reason I'm there. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not there to take any glory for myself. I'm just there to help them make the movie that's in their head and to serve the script because the script is as you know, I, I lectured at a lot of universities and I, I, I've, teached, I've taught at AFI and in places like that and, and University of South Carolina where I went to school and and um, I always say like the script, if you, my grandfather used to build houses on my mother's side and I always looked at the script like the foundation of the house. Mm-hmm. If you got a bad foundation, your house is going to fall down, you know, but mm-hmm. if you got a good a good foundation or a good script, then you've got something to build upon to make that house and be a, a, a good sturdy house that will last forever. But you have to be faithful to it and not try to, like, do too many modifications because the, the, the script itself tells you everything that movie needs to be. It's right there on the pages. You just look at it. You read it. You know exactly what you need to be doing. And, um, so if, if you follow that and are faithful to that and you and the director see eye to eye on what that should be, then you come out and you can make a very, a lovely film. If you, if you and the director are not seeing eye to eye and button heads, it's going to, it's not going to be a very pleasant experience and the film's not going to be very good.
1: No, you're right. You're you know, right.
2: And, and so it's, it's, I mean, that, that being said, sometimes you get a bad script and, 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 um, and the right director and the right actress can save it. You know, we we had a scene in school making chicken salad out of chicken shit. You know, and and it, and so you'd have to you you take what you're given and you do the absolute best you can with that, and um and you you go it, You know, it's like I mean, when they first gave me the, the script.
1: <laughs> How do you shoot that? Blah. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs>
2: Well, no. It's, it's, it's like well, like a perfect example is they gave me the script for Scream, which when when they gave me the script, it was called Scary Movie. That was the original name of the movie. And um, I read the script and I thought, oh man, this is awful. You know, I don't, this is not a very good script. But you know, other people disagreed, and, and the, that group of actors they brought in and Wes Craven, it turned out to be an, an amazing film. It's like one of the classic horror films of all time. You know, and the for ten years, whenever they talked about horror films, they show the opening that I shot with Drew Barrymore, and it was like, for ten years, I'm not kidding. Every time they talk about horror films, there was that, there were those shots, and so um, the lesson to be learned from this is, you got to treat every movie you work on like the Oscar winner because you never know which one's going to do it, and you never know which one's going to strike it with the audience and, and with people and and and. Uh, the people involved, what they're going to do to make things actually a, a great film out of it. I mean, I've had directors tell me to do things uh, back when I was operating for them or, and I, you know, I wouldn't understand, but I'd watch and I'd do it. And I would do it with enthusiasm, of course, you know, but, mm-hmm. and when I saw the film, I saw exactly why they wanted me to do that because they had something very specific in mind that mm-hmm. I wasn't really mm-hmm. grasping at, at, at that moment in time. And, um, and so every time I read a script and, and think about it and watch the movie that I see, I always think of like, well, what would the director think about this? And, you know, mm-hmm. then we start the dialogue. I mean, when we did the Mary Pickford film, Jen, Jindalia and I started meeting eight months before we, we shot, shot, the movie we met and we started talking. We met for lunch and we talk and then we'd look at pictures of Mary and we'd, we'd go and discuss and discuss, and discuss for months. And then we brought in, uh, the 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 production designers and, and the costumers and we sit down and say well if we did this and if we did this and if we did this we could have this effect and how do we want this scene to sell and blah 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 blah, blah all these things and it's a, a luxury to be able to do that because then you can have time to really hone in on what you're trying to do because some films you get and you, you come in like a week or 2 days before they want to roll cameras and they're saying okay we're going to shoot and i'm like okay we're going to shoot sure
1: <laughs> you know it's hard to be creative when yep. you don't have any time to let your mind wander your mind has to wander you have to mm-hmm. you know you have to allow that
2: mm-hmm. hmm. absolutely so you, you need you need time for that the ideas to gel and things but i mean i'm good at from the news days i'm good, i'm good at, at landing on my feet and shooting you know so mm-hmm. And the films that I've shot that way, they still look good. They still work. Um, it's 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 all these things are, are important, though. So you, you, it just becomes a different movie if you if you do that approach to it, and if you have time to really set it up. And Mary needed time to 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 for us to think it through in the jail, it because we it's a it's a it's a very um, different approach with the art direction. With the cost, the costumes are amazing. The performances are amazing, and but it's, it's and the you know we got some really incredible images that we wouldn't have done if we just jumped into it and just said okay shoot shoot it you know, mm. but it's, it's 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 a different I th- I think if you have a movie where you want a, a frantic feel to it and having a short prep time on it uh, may give you that it, it you won't be able to like think out long-term results on it, but you some some movies, they don't want that. Some, some they just shoot it, be done with it, move on to the next one, you know. So I, I tend to want to do interesting things, though, so having a little time to think it over is, is a bonus to me, so.
1: Dan, you're an eternal optimist. I love the way you take any situation and try to turn it into something positive. I think that's wonderful. What is the one thing you think the younger generation needs to hear from you that... Uh, that you would want to say to them? There's a lot of kids out there with iPhones, with the DSLRs. Uh, You know, they can't afford or even don't want some of the larger cameras that we grew up with. Uh, What do do you tell them about what's important uh, to take with them so that they can have their story come to life?
2: Don't try to start at the top. Mm -hmm. Get, Get in with the camera department or whatever department you want to be with Work with people that are better than you are, and learn. because if you start at the top, you're robbing yourself of a foundation of really great knowledge that that um, that you can you can learn from others. I mean, I started out in South Carolina, and we might do a job as a loader or an operator or a DP or whatever. But I've done all the jobs in the camera department. Mm-hmm. And, but but the other thing is that I've worked under some amazing directors and amazing camera people. And I keep my. I have a theory that I call eyes open, mouth shut. um, (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Which means what that is is if you see somebody doing something, watch them and try to figure out what they're doing, rather than asking them what they're doing. Because if you watch them and and figure out what they're doing and say, "Oh, that's why they're doing that," you'll remember that forever. Mm -hmm. But if you ask them a question and they say, oh, I just do this because of that, you'll forget it. And it's not ingrained in your brain. And one of the things in this business is you want to take um, the knowledge that you learn and the things that you see and file them away. So when you go and do another film, you won't have the exact same situations, but you'll be able to say, oh, in this film we did this and this worked that way. If I modify that here, um, I should get a result similar to this. And you can, you, can, you can draw upon all that knowledge that you've saved up over the years. And, um, you know, I just realized it's been, I've, since the news days, I've been doing this for 40 years. Hmm. And there's a lot of knowledge in that. I mean, I, I worked with Alan Davio, Alex Thompson, uh, Uli Steiger, you know, all these wonderful cameramen. And uh, uh, Roy Wagner, uh, Bob Primes, just amazing, amazing amounts of knowledge just to work with these people and have them say, you know, well, you know, if you did it this way, it might be better and this would be better and this would help you. And if you do this way, you will run into trouble with this. And these are things that you file away rather than having to learn it all over again and start at square one.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So it's always it's always good to. To listen to your your elders and to um, learn from them because they've been through the wars, and you know that that's that's really always very important.
1: I'm sure there are times when you give a commitment and then somebody that you care about very much calls you and you can't do it. That's really hard, isn't it? Well,
2: yeah. I mean, Spike Jones and and, and Michael Bay and uh, uh, Chivo, the, all these guys. When I was really busy, they were like, "Oh, can you come do this?" And, and or they'd have their people call me, and I'm like, "I, I can't wedge it <laughs> I can't fit it in there." I was so busy that I I I just didn't. I I I just couldn't work at everybody I wanted to, you know. And and you know, it it in a way it pains you, but I think you get the jobs you're meant to have, and that other people are get the jobs they're supposed to have. And and if if, if you get a job that that where they really wanted somebody else and they hired you and then it, it's never a comfortable situation. And, and my, my, um my thoughts on that are, you know, you should hire who you want and, you know, don't hire me because of whatever reason, go hire the people that you want to hire and use them and then you'll be happy and I'll be happy and I'll go work with other people that, that, that thought of me and, and rather than like just filling a hole or a void, you know? So it's, it's, it's because, you know, I get along with everybody, but, you know, it's, it's, it's like some people are determined not to get along with anybody. <laughs> yeah. and, um,
1: there are a lot of interesting characters in our business. I want to take yeah. a, a slight detour, but I, I want to talk to you. I can't talk to someone like you without bringing up the subject of light. Um, obviously, we have story. We have, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about technology in a minute, but light. Isn't it all about Light
2: well we're we're as 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 John Alton said in his book we're painting with light so it's 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 uh but it's i mean making a movie is very simple' it's you put the camera in the right place with the right lens on it, you put the lights in the right place, you put the mark in the right place, you put the actor on the mark and you roll the camera and you got a movie but it's taken me forty years to figure out what the right place is there you go you know it you know that's the that I watch so many student films in, in and films by people that are, are, you know, try to start out at the top and stuff, and the camera's in the wrong place. And I'm like, you know, that's kind of, but, you know, I've had it pounded into my head how to do an over, how to do a single, how to do a wide shot, how to do, you know, it's, it's like this, this is stuff you learn with experience and by working with people that are better than you are. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, to this day, my hiring practice is to find people that are better than I am and let them do their jobs when they're, they're on my crew. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I don't try to be a micromanager, and um, because I've been micromanaged, and I know what it feels like. And other people might have a better idea than you do. That, that's one of the biggest mistakes if you're a leader is to is to think that you have all the ideas and nobody else has any. So it, it's that's that's a really really important thing to remember.
1: So when you're working as a DP, uh, you have to find camera. People that you really trust too—it's the same thing. Mm-hmm.
2: Right? Yeah, I've had the same focus puller for thirty years.
1: Wow, that's awesome.
2: Steve Stephen Mann, yeah, he's been my focus. He pulled focus on Glory when they won the Oscar. He was the lead focus puller on Glory when they won the Oscar, and then since I've been in Los Angeles, he's been my main focus puller on all my Steadicam work, except for some of the David Lynch stuff, which Scott Wrestler, who's now a professor at the North Carolina School of Arts, teaching cinematography there. He was a focus puller for me many times. And then on Mary Pickford, I had Steve pull in focus, and Scott came in and operated some of the the extra camera stuff. My main two camera operators were Dan Gold and Mitch Dubin, and Dan did all the did Spider-Man and Unknown movies, and Mitch did the last 15 Spielberg movies. So it's like if I have talent like that around me, and my my gaffer's Dwight Campbell, who gaffed always and and, and far and away and the abyss. And you, you, you surround yourself by these talented people and you let them do what they know how to do. That's very important. And it, it because, I mean, I, I've gone into jobs and movies where I had to do everything because I had crews that were put upon me. And I'm not saying that they were bad, but it's like. I'd have to like tell them everything, and watch them, and, and and things. But when you have a great group of people surrounding you, you just let them do their jobs, and then you you make suggestions. And I'll watch everything on monitors. I'll be just adjusting filtration. I'll be adjusting lenses. I'll be saying stops and and focal lengths and camera positions and everything. I'll I'll control that. Via radios and stuff through monitors, but um, but a lot of times it's it's, it's just um, it's just you let people do what they do.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's why you've won so many awards too, because people love what you do, and and uh, you you're just you've had an amazing career. How has technology challenged you? Because things have really changed since that first Super Eight camera that your mom had to now where, you know, you could be shooting on just about any kind of camera, but the analog to digital was a huge jump and everything in between. You seem like the kind of person that adapts easily, or was it hard for you?
2: It's, 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 I, I, I try to stay on top of all the latest stuff or a lot of it, you know, but now, now it's coming through at a, like an astronomical rate. So it's like, it's almost overwhelming in, in a way. But you have to still learn a little bit about each one of these things and what might be the best way to do it. But again, it comes back to the: it's not the size of the wrench; it's the person behind the wrench. Mm -hmm. You you can make a great movie, and as they told us, when I went to the University of Southern California and studied cinema there as well, and when when they told us, they said you can make an absolute great movie in Super Eight or a home movie in Super Panavision (laughs) seventy. It's not, yeah, it's not the thing that you capture it with. Um, it's the story it's the script it's the actors now there are a lot of people that would argue that fact but there's a movie called Celebration that was shot on a palm quarter and it got distributed Uh, David Lynch shot in on the Empire on a PD-150 because he could let Laura Dern act for an hour and he had a a a one hour cassette and he didn't have to cut her and he could just let her run and he'd love to be able to do that.
1: This isn't really a, an interview about gear, but I, I would like to ask you about perhaps your favorite lenses or some of your favorite tools that, given the mm-hmm. chance, you like to work with. Do you want to talk about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, the, 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 well, yeah, the, the lenses and cameras and, and different tools that I like to work with. Um, I mean, my favorite camera uh, now, and it has been for a while, is the Airflex Alexa. And I usually put either Zeiss Super Speeds on it, or um, in case of Mary Pickford, we use Panavision Ultra Speeds. Um, I mean, there's a, the, right now there's a, a a renaissance in glass coming out. When when the digital cameras first came out, there weren't that many lenses around, and so we're having like a flood of new lenses from all different sources come in now, which is really great for us because we have a lot of different things to choose from. Um, but uh, I still like the older glass um, now because you, you, the some of the new stuff is just too friggin' sharp, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I mean, and, and when it is sharp, the the it's razor sharp in one plane, and then it, they're not very forgiving; they fall out really quick. And it's not like the depth of field thing; it's like it's it's uh, razor sharpness, and then uh, not so sharp. So, um, whereas the other lenses that, I, that I, the older lenses I use, they tend to roll into they they roll into, um, into focus over uh, they slowly roll into focus and then they slowly roll out, and they're more forgiving. The, the older lenses, what what happens with with older lenses is is they're more forgiving focus wise. They don't go they don't have just like one plane that's super sharp and everything else is falling off. They, they, they roll into um, a, an area of focus, and they roll back out. The, they never quite get as sharp as some of the, the new lenses. They're, they're a little bit softer. But on digital cameras, I find that that is more interesting to me because the digital sensors tend to get clinical sometimes mm-hmm. and, and, and get very sterile. And so I want things to, to work with them to, to kind of take that digital edge off of, whereas film kind of did it on its own. And um, with the, with the film with a digital camera, the sensor is in one place. It doesn't move. All the color pixels are on the same plane. And with film, you had three layers, and the film was always moving in the gate, flopping around. So that took it took out a lot of um, a lot of ills with film because. The, the lenses would shoot further into the emulsion for different wavelengths of light. And the, the, the film itself was moving back and forth in the gate. So that gave you a little extra leeway. Um, when digital first came out, we, for focus pullers, we always kind of looked at it like it was a widow maker. Cause you, it was really difficult until people got used to it to pull focus on digital cameras because mm-hmm. the film it forgiving in a way. And, um, so, you know, the the cameras I like right now, the Arri Alexa and the little Canons, pretty much, the, those are the ones that, like the C200 is really a nice Canon camera. And I'm, I'm hearing really good things about the Sony Venice that seems to be nice. I just haven't shot anything with it yet. Um, the Panasonic LT, Vericam LT, I liked a lot. Um, there are a lot of different cameras out there now. A, a lot of people can make a, a decent sensor now, um, but it's just the way that... Um, the the lens combination and then the color science behind that sensor really make them whether they work well or not. And um, so that's kind of tricky stuff. Again, if if you need a way to capture that image, you need a way to, um, with the sensor and with the lenses, and then with digital cameras, a lot of times you don't find yourself using 85s or or color correcting filters, but you find uh, diffusions are kind of important. So, and then what type of diffusion you use and where you put it and um, other things like that. And then the other thing to remember is that once the camera stop rolling, the director of photography's job is only halfway done. The other half of the job we've got to do is the color correction. So you go in and do a DI after the fact, and that's where you do the other half of your your direct photography work or your DP work, is you go in and you take all this Footage you've captured, and then you finally hone in the color and 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 what you see and what if there's anything that's been overexposed that you couldn't handle on the set. Um, these things are all very important to, too. So in the theater, in the DS suite, usually the best way to do it is you is you go into a place that has a big screen, like a 25 foot screen with a with a calibrated projector, usually a Barco or some other really high end. Hundred thousand dollar projector that's been calibrated to be color accurate, and you sit there with the colorist, and you go through the movie shot by shot, and you say, "Okay, this shot's a little too green. This shot's a little too red. Uh, this one we could sharpen it up a little bit if we needed to, or not, or, or or there's a big overexposure. What can we do with that? Or can we bring up the you know crush the blacks here, or what, whatever whatever you want to do, to for the image that you're trying to get, and um, and then." Um, you finally do your output and, and make DIs and, and, or make your, your uh, DCP for projection or your pro-res, or however you're going to output the movie. and But that's the other half of your job. And a lot of times uh, people don't realize this and they try to lock you out of the color suite, which is really Ooh. to their disadvantage.
1: Ooh, that would you know? be tragic.
2: Well, it, it happens, you know. It happens like everybody... The 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 thing that we're trying to avoid right now is that director of photography is being looked at as data gatherers and not artists. And um it kinda of started with with sound and Pro Tools is is the um people were recording Pro Tools and then they'd have a certain uh engineer that would record the main session and then they'd go to do, to change it and they say, Well we don't need you anymore, we got your numbers, you know. So and, <sighs> That's but sad. certain things <laughs> well, yeah, and it is sad, but there's there's certain ways I shoot things that I know that if, if I don't get it to go in there and color them, they're not going to look good because I'll take the camera down in the basement, you know, and, and right where it, it, you know, where it barely hangs on there. And um, so if you try to print it up too much, it's going to turn into noise and icky colors and that kind of stuff. So there's there's a lot of things by design that, that the way that you want things to look. hmm and the way the script needs... To, again, you come back to the script. The script requires this photography. And it needs to be um, in this in this way.
1: I think you're talking about the creative process and taking it from start to finish and working with the team. For anyone mm-hmm. on the creative side to be shut out of the final process is really difficult.
2: Well, I mean, I... I just I just hope to keep making great films. I mean, I, I, you know, I... I go, to, I go to Europe or go to museums or travel the world and see different environments a lot of times on somebody else's dime, and um, that to me is wonderful because you're always having constant input into your mind as to what you could take and how you can manipulate that into something that you can use on a film or, or just something to give you joy in life. Um, that, that's, that's really one of, the, one of the main things for me and to um, to just have constant curiosity mm-hmm. and constant, constant uh, joy.
1: I think you'll have it. I wish that for you. I wish that it continues well into the future. I, I can't thank you enough for the time today, and I think that what you're talking about is going to be very inspiring to both the young filmmakers starting out and the people who've been around for a long time. We need more people like you in the business, Dan, So uh, thanks for your time and your generosity and I hope that we get to talk again soon. I'd like to actually do another interview with you down the road, perhaps on camera about the technology and the cameras and the lenses and sound and all of, all of those aspects of the, the, uh, the hardware side of what you do. That might be fun. But in the meantime, thanks for sharing your big heart with us and, and uh, I'd like to say this is Serena Catania and I'm signing off from OWC Radio and thanking Dan Neese and do you want people to go to danneese.com where do you want them to go on the internet to learn more about you
2: uh, well they can go to danneese.com or they can go to my, my ne- put my name D-A-N-K-N-E-E-C-E into IMDB and that'll have a lot of the different credits and um, things, ways to- I think there's a way to reach me there. Um, But uh, you can certainly do it through my website or on Facebook as well.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, Dan. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And remember what I always tell you, get up off that chair and go do something wonderful today. Have a great day.